Welcome to the Oxford Berlin Creative Collaborations podcast. In this series, we showcase research projects across the arts and humanities drawing on expertise from the University of Oxford and Berlin University of the Arts to integrate scientific methodologies and artistic expression. This week, we'll be exploring the project Sounds of Contagion. The Sound of Contagion is a project born out of the collaborative partnership between Berlin and Oxford. Chelsea Haith, Robert Laidlow and Wenzel Menat are collaborating on this project to answer the question, what does a society of contagion sound like? This project concretized in response to the 2020 pandemic, as well as to concerns about interpersonal connection, academic interaction online, and performance of live music via mediated platforms. The project involves inputting texts about pandemics, from Oedipus Rex to Afterland, into an algorithm to generate new text objects. From these, we extract narrative pieces and design story worlds using the narrative probe technique. What you're going to hear now is the three of us reflecting on the process and progress of the project thus far. I'm Chelsea Haith. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Oxford, working on speculative fiction and cities. Hi, I'm Robert Laidlow, a composer and researcher at the Royal Northern College of Music. My research is about how to use artificial intelligence as a creative tool during the compositional process. Hello, my name is Wenzel Maynard. I'm working at the University of the Arts, where I explore creative methods to develop story worlds and write speculative fiction to reflect on new and emerging technologies. So the way we're going to be conducting this uh, podcast episode is the three of us have come up with some questions to ask one another about the process and how we've developed the project thus far. So Chelsea, I had a question for you, which is something that I thought of when we were kind of melding together new technology um, in AI, which has obviously got a big bubble around it, lots of anticipation. And I was wondering in, in your field of research, how much it matters um, whether ideas or technologies or notions or themes or whatever it is um, might be outdated or the things that people thought the future might hold didn't come to pass and does that matter when you study historical texts so the so there's a few parts to answering a question like that and it's really really it's a really wonderful question to be asked because people talk about science fiction as being prescient um, in a lot of ways or science fiction writers as being prescient in a lot of ways William Gibson's kind of 1980s work is just what we now have as the internet what we now know as the internet you know you, you can watch uh, episodes of Star Trek and see kind of forerunners of what we now have as iPad tablets so there's a lot of instances of technology that we currently have that we read back into. And I think it is really important that we consider how uh, the future was thought about previously um, in these speculative texts, because um, they say a lot about the periods of the time. They also show us a little bit about how how we have and haven't conformed to those expectations. You know, Thomas More was writing the utopia in response to the chaos that he perceived um, in England and it was intended to be a sort of a guide for how Henry VIII might reconfigure his his political affairs essentially and there are there are different kind of ways of of framing the future as we talk about it in utopian studies sometimes that is very very far future texts so someone like Ursula Le Guin 
who wrote uh, The Left Hand of Darkness, which is set kind of very far in the future, this presumption that we can travel off-world, uh, that we would interact with aliens that who, who have a kind of capacity to interact with us, um, so some kind of intelligent life that is intelligible to human beings versus near future fiction which is but uh, you know which is a text by someone like Kim Stanley Robinson who thinks about the climate and climate disaster and climate breakdown near future texts are very often more troubling but also more revealing about uh, what the societies that we have uh, might become and also it tells us a lot about who we might leave behind so there's some quite important work to be done on thinking about the absences in in a lot of kind of future-oriented narratives. So historical texts that that consider the future will very often uh, leave out certain groups. And that goes all the way back to Utopia and Thomas More, who thought about the perfect world as a world that still had slaves. So it's not perfect for everyone and there's that is i think the the key concern that i have with thinking about historical records of or historical uh, texts about the future that uh, similarly in kim stanley robinson's novel novels he he speaks to the the kind of the question of who gets left behind you know in in the great floods um if the if the sea levels rise etc so there are there are different kinds of concerns that we see if you think about what what is absent from those historical texts that shape how the you know writers in the past thought about the future and i think that influences how we think about how writers in the present write about the future and we have to consider whether or not texts are morally obligated in some ways to or, or writers are potentially morally obligated to write uh to write absent figures back in um, back into the the texts, and I mean, this is my soapbox that that writing is is a political act, and that and that speculative fiction is itself, you know, a speculation, a theorization of of the future, and is thus kind of imbricated in a political process. That is really interesting. Um, I really like you framing it in terms of absence. Actually, um, that's something that is quite relevant in not the musical fields necessarily but uh, other fields of artificial intelligence certainly definitely the ones um the kind of algorithm which are used to identify people for example is a kind of a well-known um problem that um passport algorithms used to identify people's faces couldn't do it with people of color because it was only white people in the in the data set um, and similarly when amazon used an algorithm to hire people um it tried to offer fewer jobs to women and the jobs that it did offer were of less pay and because that's what it found or rather what it didn't find in the data set was was fairness um and there were absences in the data set which weren't addressed mm. i mean i think we see a fair amount of um uh, bias um in the in the in the data sets that we had and then obviously in the narrative artifacts that came out of them so many of the characters are male uh, because so many of the texts that we use are uh, structured around male characters and then the second set because you know the human element um redressing that bias the second set features a lot more women um because i chose texts that were about women in in experiencing um the apocalypse through a pandemic at the core of this project is a collection of several stories from the last century about topics like pandemics and such like. And Rob, I wonder, as you were taking care of the whole uh, artificial intelligence and the process of integrating those stories, 
could you describe a little bit how do you feel that AI is helping you as an artist with your uh, creative work? Yeah. Um, well, artificial intelligence is first and foremost a, a new technology and there's always room for new technologies in the creative process. Um, and that's always been the case, whether it's been the invention of the piano or of the laptop um, or even of a, you know, an instrument like the violin is still a technology of some sort, even though we don't think of it now in that way. Um, so I think as, as a researcher, it could be really beneficial to, um, in general, for any technology, test out what it can do, what its benefits are, and what it can offer both to a composer, but also a performer or an amateur or a teacher, that kind of thing. Um, but with artificial intelligence in particular, there are a few really interesting um, parts of it that I find very useful in my creative work. Um, it can offer unexpected um, and unlooked for solutions to problems you might pose to it. Um, and that's quite different from using a, like a top-down algorithm where you've told it what to do the whole time or an algorithm that does things at random where there's really no decision-making process at all. But it's certainly not like working with another human um, who you can have a proper conversation with and who can actually sentiently understand a project that we're working on in the way that the three of us understand the project we're working on. Um, that can be sort of stimulating, exciting, and push you in new directions um, in a way that other technology and uh, working with um, other people uh, can't quite do or can't do in the same way. So we used AI to generate um, the text of this, of this project, this research project, um, which is something I've done in the past and something I find uh, really useful um, in my general practice as a composer because um, there's quite a big difference between using music written by an AI and responding to text written by an AI. Um, you have quite a lot more freedom with the latter um, and you can interpret it in, in different ways and it's just adds a whole different layer of the creative process. So what I've done in this project and what I've done in previous projects as well um, is used a, a selection of, of text generating algorithms. Okay, And what these things do really is they just learn uh, from a, it's called a corpus. So you put together all the text you want it to learn from. In this case, all these brilliant texts that Chelsea has put together. You put all of them into one big uh, chunk and you get an algorithm to look at it and look at it again and again and again and again. And each time it looks through the entire corpus, um, it changes a few little mathematical functions within its little neural network. Um, within its kind of AI brain, as it were. And each time it changes these mathematical functions, um, what it produces becomes uh, closer to the original data set, I guess is the best way of describing it. Um, and so if you leave it for long enough, eventually it will produce something that at least the algorithm thinks is very close or indistinguishable from the original data set in whatever way it thinks that is. Um, and that might be in terms of sentences or grammar or characters. But you can also, with high-level algorithms, also have it bring up you know, themes um, and longer-running narrative elements as well. Um, so I'm going to pose a question now to Wenzel. Um, would you describe your narrative probe strategy and talk a little bit how we've applied it to the AI-generated texts to produce a final narrative? So the way that I understand narrative probes, or rather the way that I look at narratives, is that I'm very much interested in the way that narratives show a structure or show a world that is structured around the, the protagonist. So when I read a story, like uh, you, you, you gave the example of William Gibson before, when I read Neuromancer, for example, I'm not so much interested in the way that 
the protagonist's case goes from one dilemma to the other or makes his decisions and, and goes through this character arc, I'm more interested in the world that he describes, so the world that Gibson describes, and how new technologies are involved in this world. So there, are in, in his example, what's it called, SimStim, I think, those technologies where you can simulate the senses of somebody else and then you create some empathy basically with other person. It's interesting how he describes it. So for me, what I'm looking at is how those technologies are becoming like new actors or new powerful um, players within a society and how people were imagining that. So depiction of narrative worlds is basically done through narratives. And when we read narratives, you know, there are those descriptive passages that explore and explain the world and how it's structured. And for me, a narrative probe, on the other hand, then is a text, it's like a, a very short text that gives an insight into this imaginary world. And I use this technique of narrative probes often to, like, for example, write science fiction with developers to better reflect on their way that they imagine how a technology might change the world. And to also like bring in ethical reflections of what kind of unintended, unintended consequences do we find in this world and how they imagine it. And if we change the narratives, might we also generate another world which is more preferable to us from an ethical standpoint. Coming back to this, uh, this process here and the project that we are working on here, what I find very much interesting here is that the narrative probes, like the, those little text artifacts that were giving an insight into those um, worlds behind it were actually not written by, uh, by, by real persons, but they're written by an AI. So the AI took the corpus and it was writing its own stories. And if we, when we read those stories, for us, it's hard to understand them because they are clearly not written with, a, with an understanding of sense in it. Because oftentimes they clearly do not make sense. But while reading it, what our brain does, it tries to make sense of them. So it, we, we get trigger points in the stories. Just read the first two sentences of, of uh, one of this. The International Committee of the Dead voted unanimously to authorize the operation to liberate the cities from clutches of the marauders. And just in this sentence, we get so many trigger points, so many cues about the world. We hear something of an International Committee of the Dead. We hear that there are cities which need to be liberated. We, we learn that there are marauders. In our mind, when we read this, a whole world expands. And we dive into that just and, and try, to, try to explore it and want more cues from the text. But obviously, as this text is not written by a person, the cues we get are just coming and throwing in randomly. And it's us as readers who are creating this world uh, while we read it, and this is it's a, it's a very cognitive process, and this is what really triggers me when reading those AI uh, narrative probes or this AI created narrative probes, because it's more it's 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 a very intriguing um, thought process that evokes in me while reading it, and I think it will uh, it will be similar in, in, uh, to the readers that will or to the listeners when when we read the stories to them. Okay, um, then. Chelsea, I have one question for you. So, as you are interested in narratives and also interested in speculative fiction and futures, I wonder uh, where do you see the connection between narratives and like, future thinking and the way that we imagine the future? 
when I research science fiction and speculative fictions and I'm looking at how narratives about the future are constructed, it's quite important for me to map those onto onto the present. And a lot of the public engagement with research work that I do is about teaching and, and talking about how we can apply narratives and narratives about the future to the present to show and think about um, how we want our societies to be structured. And I come to it from a post-colonial studies background, that was my initial training, and what that means is that I very often approach texts about the future um, from a decolonial perspective or from a theory from the Global South um, perspective. Um, and I think that's also quite important and that's something that um, I'd like to see more of in, in sort of Global North Academy is an approach that doesn't view the South as the site of field work, but, but maybe reversing that view. And so taking a Southern view of the North and thinking about, you know, the, the West, you know, thinking about Western modernity, for example, um, as a site for, for field work. Those are the kinds of concerns that I think are useful to tease out in in future kind of oriented texts to think about and, and I think that they generate kind of commentary and, and, and um, a political engagement that is that is quite necessary and I think the place that this research can go to um, is thinking about really thinking about and doing sociological testing and and, um, and scientific testing on 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 the capacity of texts to create empathy um, so if a future oriented text can introduce aliens that we need to understand, or if a future-oriented text is about the near future and it's about climate disaster, then is there an element of, uh, of empathy that is generated? And how does that work? And, do and does that work? I mean, there's, that's, that's a part of the question. And I know that someone like Lisa Garforth at Newcastle um, is really interested in thinking about this, and her work on green utopias um, is quite important in the sort of run-up to, to doing more of that kind of research. And that's the kind of research I'd like to do in the future as well, thinking about how these texts work to shape uh, the future. Uh, and, if, and if they do, it's kind of a question of literacy and of media literacy, um, and thinking about how narrative as a process might generate uh, a slightly more uh, ethically inclusive future. Um, I think I have a question now for Rob. Uh, once the texts had been, uh, once all the data sets, uh, which were the texts, had been input into the algorithm and, um, and you'd changed the temperature on, on the various sets and we'd kind of you'd come back with all these strange narrative artifacts that had been designed by or that had been um, manipulated or changed by the different prompts that we'd given it, uh, given the system. What was it like to look through the kind of resulting artifacts? So what did I think of the kind of results and, and how to use them? I'm often surprised by how effectively a, in this case, a text generating algorithm, although it is the same for music generating algorithms as well. Um, I'm surprised at how quickly and efficiently these parts of these algorithms can conjure up an atmosphere, a mood, a time period, a feeling, um, a, a general sense of, of what's happening. And you can get situated inside a, a sort of environment and without necessarily the actual uh, sentences or the paragraphs are really leading on from each other in a meaningful way and that's quite an interesting thing to try and unpick um, because you know when I'm setting text written by a, a human often you know they'll have come at it from completely the opposite way around really it'll be they'll have an idea for a text and then they'll spend the whole time crafting that atmosphere so so you by the time you get to the end you um you've 
you know got something from it you know what to set to music an algorithm just goes start to end and doesn't really have an idea of what it's doing so there's quite a different sense of pacing when you're reading it a different sense of uh, which parts are important of, of, of structure of the text certainly um, and all of these things go in um, to the compositional process to create quite a different approach to setting the text you know it's a bit more sometimes a bit more improvisatory sometimes a bit more um, pushing you in, in directions you didn't expect but often the sort of contrast in the text between absolute sort of banality of material and then something you know really either dense or thought-provoking or difficult or strange um, they can flip between all these um, sort of uh, polarities very quickly um, and that can be a really interesting thing to try and respond to in music whether you um, choose to do that in the music or whether you choose to actually subvert that and and uh, have the music and the text operate on completely different levels as it were. I'm really interested in hearing essentially what well, hearing kind of what you what you compose um, but I absolutely agree on like the the effect of reading the the sometimes rubbish and sometimes really really affecting work um, and kind of wondering what we you know how how the algorithm kind of learnt um, what makes something feel quite literary, um, and and what kind of what reads as uh, you know an action thriller. Carry on, Rob. I was just saying, I think that um, that yeah, it produces a lot of information, and it's actually it is you, Chelsea, who has uh, cut that down as well. So the algorithm is to be, and the more accurately, the people who coded the algorithm are to be lauded for their for their work. But there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, our projects sort of um, teasing out things we think are interesting in there as well, uh, which shouldn't be ignored. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important for anyone listening to this to know that the uh, the algorithm produced loads and loads of uh, of uh, textual artifacts that um, that I then edited into a into a narrative. I've simply attached various textual artifacts to one another in a way that produces a um, a, a, a sort of coherent whole. Yeah, I think there's also a lot of potential in the text itself. I mean, as you said, uh, Chelsea, we used all those different artifacts and which were coming from many, many different contexts and were also from the AI itself were not generated in um, in any sense of coherence, but they were just like little chops of pieces. And then you went through them and, and uh, chose the pieces that... Um, uh, what was the criteria again that you chose it for? I think it had to serve something with sound, right? I was looking for for references to sound, references to um, the or like the oral experience of um, of a pandemic or of a um, of, an, of a catastrophe of some kind, and and a story seemed to sort of develop from that. So it was like mining a story out of you know out of a piece of stone, a messy rock. <laughs> yeah, I like I like the the, the uh, metaphor of mining out of the. This is uh, this really brings or describes the process very well. I think like coming back to this idea of world building, so which is like the the process of authors to create a story world and then write a story about it. What I feel here is that with this process or with this approach of having an AI producing text artifacts and then afterwards going into those text artifacts and shape or try to mine the world that is in there on a granular level of what elements do we find here that give us any cues about the world or any clues about the world. I find this is a very creative approach also to, to go to the process of world building. Like we as authors of this piece, we did not thought about it at first and then fit it together, but instead we had some 
external creative process, namely here the artificial intelligence that was giving us all those artifacts. And then we went in there and were looking for the cues and um, put them together. So it's it's not the way that, you know, actually intended that uh, machines or technology is helping us to become better. Here it feels more that we are helping the machine or the technology to become better by giving sense to, to what it what it created here. That kind of leads into what I was going to ask you about, Renzel. What you see is the role of the author in your work, really. You know, how important is the author? Um, I get because earlier you were talking about reading this machine learning generated material as, you know, as a reader and it being an exercise for the reader. Um, and I think that's very true. And it just sort of got me thinking, well, what if we enter a world, say, where a lot of, a lot of books, say a lot of best-selling you know, uh, reading on the beach kind of books are written by an AI, which is not an unreasonable thing to think mm. might happen. Um, you know, what, what do you think the role of the author is in that case and, and in your work? You know, does it does that matter? That's a very good question. I think it, it depends on the on the perspective on how you look at it. I mean, you probably know this very famous quote by Roland Barthes, who says uh, the author is dead, and by that he basically refers to that every text that is produced is reproduced by the reader. So the reader is creating the world, is creating the, is, is probably interpreting a text differently than the author might have thought it would be interpreted. So the, the, the power shift of analyzing or um, understanding narratives is going away from the author, but it's more focusing on the text or maybe even on the reader. The reader understands and creates the world in his, in his imagination. So when you bring this example of the of the, like a very easy literature of a, like a very easy thing that you can read on the beach or like those uh, Groschenromane as we say in German, I think here it doesn't really matter who the author is. I would say, but it's always it's only about what what it does with you as a reader and what it does with you while while you're reading it. And coming back to the the work that we did here and the piece that we did here, what I find so interesting about this. Um, this experiment and when also when reading it that is for me I found extremely engaging Although it doesn't make sense. I always try to like when reading it I, I always try to somehow create a coherence in my mind. So my my mind is extremely active while reading it I'm, I'm very much engaged and by that. I'm also very much immersed in the text This text that we produced here. It kind of reminded me on the like early dataistic Texts coming from like in twenty beginning of twentieth century in Germany, where where authors were just trying to create nonsense with texts, or maybe thinking about um, the, the the cut up texts where we're just cutting different elements and put them together, not with the intention of creating sense, but more with the intention of, of creating like a maybe an atmosphere or just a feeling. And this is, I think, this is very similar to what we did here. And again, it's not so much about what feeling the author, or in this case, uh, the AI was intended, because the AI is not intending anything, it just did something, but it's more about what we as readers feel that it does with us while reading it. Yeah, so I think this is a very good example for this, coming back to the quote by Roland Barthes, uh, the author is dead. I think this is a very good example for that. It's actually not about the author, it's all about what it does with us as readers while reading and engaging in the text. I was just saying that that is the idea of the cut up is quite actually um, 
in a way that is uh, that, that's how the algorithm learns. I don't think it makes a meaningful difference to that comparison, but it's just interesting that um, the way that it learns, it, it cuts up the, the corpus into lots of different little batches. Um, and I can control how big those batches are and how many batches it looks at once. And it sort of cuts them up and, and looks at them and tries to work out how those little cut up bits work and then looks at a new set of cut up bits. And th that's how it learns actually. Um, and then it kind of reconstitutes those cut-ups into something it thinks makes structural sense. Um, but I, I don't want to get into the architecture of AI, but it's, it's quite similar to that sort of Dadaoist idea, actually. Mm. And then we come along and we cut it up some more. <laughs> it, it would be nice to reflect on the whole processes of how we engage with the AI and vice versa. And what, you know, what this what this process actually did with us and, and what we did with the process. Mm. Mm. I think that'll be really good for the third episode um, of this triptych of uh, reflections and engagements with uh, with the Sound of Contagion project. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, guys. That's really interesting. Um, and yeah, thanks for the interesting questions you uh, asked me as well. It makes me think about my practice and always fascinating to hear your guys' thoughts on um, not only your own work, but each other's work and my work as well. Um, so that brings to the end this uh, first part of this podcast where we talk about uh, what we've kind of done so far and the initial ideas and um, broad research um, ideas. And next time I'm looking forward to uh, playing a little bit of music to show what we've done with the materials that we're talking about. We're gonna play some music. We're gonna hear some of these uh, results of the algorithm and the way that we've uh, put them together. Um, and we hope that you're excited to hear that. Um, so thank you, Renzel and Chelsea, and see you then. Many thanks for listening to our work. We hope you found it stimulating and that you will subscribe for more thought-provoking work from artists and researchers working in Oxford and Berlin. If you would like to get in touch, please email us at info at oib.ox.ac.uk.